All right, welcome back 2021 to episode seven of the Open Source Sports Podcast. My name is Ron Yurko. And I'm Costas Palacrinis. And we're very excited to sort of celebrate in a way um, this week the submissions of the Big Data Bowl 2020. And so we're doing a throwback to one of the finalists of the, uh, the first Big Data Bowl 2018 expected hypothetical completion probability. So if you have looked at any of this year's big datable submissions, you have repeatedly seen this paper and these two names cited over and over again. So, and we have both of the authors as guests on today's uh, episode. They are Samir Deshpande and Catherine Evans. Samir is a postdoc associate at MIT. Prior to that, he completed his PhD at the Wharton School University of Pennsylvania. He is broadly interested in Bayesian methods and causal inference. He is a long-suffering but unapologetic fan of America's team. And so for people, they, that's a way that Dallas Cowboy fans identify themselves to the public, but no one actually thinks they're America's team. Anyway, he's also a fan of the Dallas Mavericks, and that's a more acceptable. You know, we're, we're fine with the Dallas Mavericks. Cowboys, <laughs> we're not fine with. So welcome, Samir. Great to be here. I'm also joined by Kathy. She's the Director of Strategic Research for the Toronto Raptors, completed her PhD in biostatistics at Harvard University. She doesn't have an opinion on frequentist versus Bayesian or R versus Python, but will get very upset if Rise of Skywalker is your favorite Star Wars movie. And I just want people to know that I did not wing this or come up with these intros on my own, but these were the bios that both sent to me. Thank you, Kathy. Uh, happy to be here. Maybe yes, we could talk a little Star Wars at the end of the show, potentially. We'll see. We'll see how things go. Uh, but yeah, no, thank you both uh, for accepting to come on. And, you know, as I said, this week was this year's big datable submissions coming in. Uh, and it was all about passing defense and your work two years ago. You were finalists in the big datable 2018, and you specifically worked on something related to passing. So I was just, you know, if you want to, you know, get started with a overview of the motivation for your work and you know, why you decided to tackle this problem. Yeah, did you want to kick it off? Yeah, I, um, I mean, we, we decided to work on the Big Data Bowl and it was like a three week turnaround. So the idea that we like thought long and hard about our motivation and exactly what we wanted to work on is, is, uh, it wasn't a lot. I think we like sat and we like whiteboarded like five ideas and we were like, this one seems doable in the time frame that we have. Let's do this. Um, and a lot of it was sort of came together as we as we moved along. So to say the motivation, like I think there's sort of a causal inference um, slant to it. Uh, Samir and I are both uh, in causal inference and this idea of like a counterfactual world or a hypothetical world. So I think that was like part of the motivation. But um, there was no like we've been long thinking about this problem and we could finally answer it once we had tracking data. Like that's that's not true. I mean, this was like a, a you know sugar fueled project. Yeah, and to, 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 to build on that a little bit, um, you know, one thing that I think when we were whiteboarding this, one of the first things that we thought of doing was saying like, well, let's build a model for predicting whether a receiver catches the football. Um, given the tracking data, like that seems like a really natural thing one could do. Uh, and then when we started thinking about it, you can you kind of, kind of ask like conceptually fitting the model for like the catch probability, 
it's a fairly straightforward task. You've got some inputs related to like maybe what direction the receiver was looking when he tried to catch the ball or how far the nearest defender was. And maybe you include some stuff from, you know, what the game looked like when the pass was thrown. And then you can output a probability. And, you know, there are a lot of ways to train this type of model, but like that's conceptually like not a hard problem to solve. But then the question becomes like, well, what can we do with this type of model? Like we can evaluate passes that have been observed in the data set, but what about all of the other passes that could have been thrown, but ultimately weren't? And, and so what really got us thinking along, along the lines of what's in the papers is this idea of like, how do you use this model in a, in a useful way to reason about things you can't see, like things that are fundamentally unobservable? Um, and, and that also has a, like, a very strong connection to kind of the causal training Kathy was mentioning. Yeah, I think, I think one of the things that we think about a lot is that, especially in sort of discourse around sports, there's a lot of like conditioning on the outcome, which is like, well, that catch was successful. And so therefore it was a good throw, it was a good pass. That play was good because it was successful. And, um, you know, conditioning on the outcome is like one of the worst things you can do. And, and so I think we sort of wanted to think about like, well, how do you sort of build a framework that is like very clearly not conditioning on the outcome in that just because this play was successful this time, if we iterated over and over and over and we drew thousands of samples of that same throw, would it still be a good play? Yeah, I mean, conditioning on the outcomes, I, I think the classic case is, is, is Pete Carroll in, in the Super Bowl, right? Like if you, run, if you run that play back a thousand times, how many times does Malcolm Butler actually come up with it? Um, so, so that's like one big reason why you should never condition on outcomes when evaluating this type of stuff. Yeah, no, and so, yeah, I mean, that's, a, that's getting into the uncertainty in trying to do this hypothetical situation. Um, I guess so before going into that part, and you're just talking about even, you know, it's, it could be to start with very simple to do like a completion probability model, like this first initial step. But in your paper, I mean, you, you use the BART approach, right? Bayesian additive regression trees. So you know, if you give a walkthrough of, you know, what was the reasoning for one, you know, taking a Bayesian approach to begin with, uh, and if you give a little bit of an overview to explain to people, uh, you know, what BART is, uh, how it works. Yeah, the, the short answer is I'm, I'm a, like, very committed Bayesian, and, and that's why I used a Bayesian method. Um, I could give you a philosophical reason about why I think it's the right way to talk about uncertainty and coherently updating our uncertainty, but, you know, it, it, that, that really only goes so far, that philosophical reason. Um, BART is a extremely flexible Bayesian non-parametric regression tool. Um, and, and one of the nice things is it is extremely easy to use and it requires the user to do essentially no training for learning hyperparameters it comes with some default off the shelf kind of kind of specifications that work well across a lot like a large number of problems and empirically it's it's proven to be a really really reliable regression tool um, and and so at an extremely high level what bard is doing is it's it's decomposing some unknown function and in this case it's the log odds of catching the football conditioned on uh, like given a lot of inputs and it decomposes that function into a sum of regression trees or, or piecewise constant step functions. And so the, the intuition here is that given any reasonable function, say a bounded function, we know we can approximate it sort of arbitrarily well with 
a sufficiently complicated step function. And, and the idea is that Bart says, represent that function using a sum of a lot of little step functions, which can be written as regression trees. Um, and so it has this big sum of trees ensemble is used to approximate these unknown functions. And, and it is Bayesian, so you kind of simulate a random walk through the space of trees to, to do some sort of MCMC to do posterior sampling. To, to just follow a little bit uh, uh, on that, um, so I, I guess based on what you uh, said, one of the main benefits is uh, that it, it, it doesn't require a lot of tuning uh, from someone that's not very familiar with, with the method. Uh, but when it comes to actual, you know, modeling and uh, evaluating the performance, would, would it have um, other cases or, or, you know, is it generally having better performance than more traditional Bayesian approaches? For example, a, a Bayesian regression with, um, for example, in this case, since we're talking about probabilities like with beta prior and updating based on the data and stuff like that. Yeah, it's a great question. Um... I think a, a big part of it was, you know, we're, we're doing some sort of logistic regression and it's certainly like, like it, I, I think a linear, a linear form in that logistic link is, is oversimplistic. Like, like the, we know the linear model is not going to be good. Uh, and we know there's going to be interactions between these variables. And so the tree-based approach is kind of, it's kind of, us saying a prayer in some sense. We said, you know, like, let the tree figure all of this out and let's not pre-specify interaction levels or which variables are important. Let's let the tree kind of figure all of this stuff out. It, it's really a, you know, we don't have strong prior opinions about what this function looks like. I, I think if we did, we could certainly, you know, use a different model. We did, there's no need to, there's, there's something like, nothing special about BART in this particular case. It's just a, Thing that works pretty well and doesn't require us to think too hard about the about the functional form. Yeah, it, it handles like nonlinearities and interactions and stuff like just sort of off the shelf, which is nice. And again, like I said at the top, you know, we were on a, a time deadline to some extent. And so I, I think I think part of the story of this like project coming together isn't just like here's an interesting football idea. It's like how do you go from okay, we got some data, what do we do? We have a deadline, and how do you piece these things together? And so part of you know, this framework that we created is that there are these like modular pieces and you can do whatever you want in those modular pieces. So part of this is like feature derivation um, and feature engineering and, you know, okay, we came up with a bunch of things and then we put them into a model. Well, you could have different features and similarly, you could use a different prediction method. Um, we use BART because Samir's a Bayesian and he likes BART and I didn't have any objections to it. And it worked. And it was one of those things where like, again, you're on a time deadline. This is a thing that works really, really well off the shelf. And so like, let's just go with it. But you, you could absolutely use any number of other um, uh, algorithms or whatever. So uh, this may be incorrect, but it would be fair to say in a way that BART is like a Bayesian analog to doing gradient boosted trees. Uh, yes, but it's, it's very different in the, in the following respect. Um, the number of trees is fixed from the beginning and, and they're, they're sort of learned incrementally. So you don't try to, like with boosting, right? You're, you're, you try to get as good of a fit with one tree and then you fit the residual with the next tree and, and so on and so forth. Um, it's similar to boosting in the sense that the trees are updated one at a time and kind of conditional on the fit of the others. It's, it, it kind of occupies this kind of space, liminal space between random forests and, and, and boosting. 
because there is no subsampling involved. So it's not like random forests in that regard, but the trees themselves owe sort of ordering to the trees. Whereas in like boosting, there is kind of this implicit ordering. So it kind of fits between the two. So, so just uh, again, similar question. Uh, mm -hmm. So you said that the trees are fitted sequentially, right? So yeah. does this mean that mm -hmm. You can think of it as the output of one tree is kind of the prior for learning the next tree. No, they're they're actually IID uh, a priori, um, and, and and so the algorithm is very close to the Bayesian backfitting algorithm. So how you might fit a GAM, for instance, it's okay. it, it's stylistically very similar. It's a Gibbs sampler, um, and one one of the cool things about Bart is that the trees themselves are not likelihood identified. Um, they they just aren't. You could change the labels of the trees and get the same fit. But, but I think that gives you a considerable advantage because you're, you're trying to build up this fit by a lot of little pieces. So you can think of Bart as sort of getting a big picture by making a bunch of little dots. Um, mm -hmm. So each individual tree doesn't explain much variation, but in aggregate, it starts to explain a lot. Um, and so you get a lot of representational flexibility. It's an overcomplete basis. So one of the things I thought, um... It's interesting, especially in the context of how you were presenting your work in this paper, a little bit of the description of the, the features used and what's coming up in terms of like, you know, the way people always summarize any tree-based method, right? In terms of variable importance. You see all the Kaggle submissions always include the bar chart with variable importance. Um, so you use this, uh, you cite this paper, Linero 2018, um, you know, that is this modification to BART for doing this sense of like variable importance. So like, I guess from my understanding, the way it's described in the paper, right, is you're placing a prior on the variables for in the splitting, right, for the selection in the actual tree splitting. So could you give a, you know, a little bit more depth explanation of that, you know, don't go overboard, I guess, but, um, and also like why you view that as beneficial? Yeah. Um, so in the in the prior and bar, so originally this the original paper by, by Chipman, Georgia McCulloch in, in 2010, it begins by saying the prior of regression trees, uh, you specify kind of the regression tree structure where it's just like where the root node is, what the children of those are, and kind of the, the overall sort of shape of the tree. And then to each of the internal nodes, you assign a decision rule. And 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 and, and Chipman, Georgia McCulloch. Pick, pick the decision rule basically uniformly. You uniformly pick a variable to split on, you uniformly pick a cut point. What, what Tony Lanero did in his, in his work was he said, pick the variable index, like are you gonna split on the first variable or the second variable, pick that according to a multinomial distribution and then put a Dirichlet prior on, that, on the multinomial parameters and let them be updated with the data. And he set it up in a way that this, this encourages sparsity so that any one tree you know, the, the trees are regularized to be shallow anyway, and they're regularized to only focus on splitting on a small number of variables. And so the idea is that as, as the fitting procedure moves along, you kind of learn which variables produce useful splits, and then you kind of focus in on those. So it's kind of like a variable selection prior, kind of a standard Bayesian variable selection thing. And, and so we don't do the variable importance in the sense of like a shapely value or or like a variable importance where you sort of permute the, permute the variable and refit. Um, this, is, this is a strict Bayes, 
I, I guess you could ground it from decision theory, but it's it's a Bayesian sparsity type of thing. Got it. And yeah, I like how in the paper, I mean, I what's it on, um, I guess for people looking at the paper, listening on page 10, and then also page nine, like they go into the actual, um, the posterior splitting probabilities of the the different variables at the different points of time. Um, so I thought that was actually not, you know, that's actual nice way of getting uh, the in, what, interpretation of what you're actually modeling for this completion probability. Um, you know, it's just something like, I mean, I am not a Bayesian, I'm a CMU stats PhD student. So, you know, I'm indoctrinated that school of thought, but, um, you know, it's just something to be aware of, I guess, for actually trying to implement BART and, you know, something that's beneficial in practice. So I guess the one thing I'll ask about when actually implementing BART, and I see people tweet about, well, it's not using Kaggle. Um, so, I mean, one of the things you just have to deal with, right, is computational time it takes longer than, you know, running XGBoost. Yep. Right. So that that's the biggest drawback you know, because, you know, apparently people are really upset if they have to wait a few hours or run something overnight these days instead of just, you know, running it for 20 minutes or whatnot. I don't know. I mean, you could do what we did, which is set it to run and then watch football. <laughs> there you yeah, go. That, that's pretty much exactly what we did. Um, yeah, I mean, so I, I will make a plug. There's, there's some really cool work being done by, um, by, by this guy over at Arizona State on you know, BART's a full sampling algorithm. It's it's doing MCMC. So like why you would expect it to be faster than say XGBoost, I think like it, it you've got to calibrate your expectations. But uh, he did this kind of stochastic hill climbing version of BART, which which is kind of like mode finding. And, and that thing is fast. And, it, and it's meant to be like comparable to, to XGBoost. So there might be a logistic version of it floating around but, but this is a sort of accelerated part. So that's some really new stuff that hopefully will start to be used in Kaggle contests. I think in terms of, Costas, um, did you wanna? No, no, I was just um, going to talk about the counterfactual pass, but then I don't know if you have any follow-up on that. I, I think actually, okay, before the, we get into the hypothetical and the, like the counterfactual situation, um, we'll, we'll go with a Twitter question from, uh, the one and only stats by Lopez. EPA would be a better outcome metric, but it's both highly skewed and on pass plays bimodal. How do we think BART would handle that? Is there any framework that could be adopted? Kathy, do you want to, do you have thoughts on this? Like, uh, So my thoughts on this are like, sure, EPA is probably a better outcome. Um, and I don't know enough about BART to say, to speak to whether or not it, it performs really well with this. Um, my initial thought is like, well, you could always model this in like a, like instead of thinking about just EPA as the outcome, you could think of like the probability that the ball is caught. And then given that it's caught, what's your EPA? And then you're just like factoring a likelihood. And then you can still use BART for part of it. And then you can, you can fit the EPA thing um, with another method. And then that way you're at least avoiding the sort of bimodal parts, um, the, the sort of the bimodal issue. Uh, but you know, I think I mean I think it's a, it's a fair point, which is that when thinking about a lot of these questions, it's you know there's sort of the easy thing to do, and then there's the what is the question that you're actually interested in. And we decided to frame this as what's the probability the guy catches the ball, but the more interesting question might be what's the probability that he you know gets a first down or that he has a you know scores a touchdown. Yeah. There's, there's a lot of things, and so I think that that's like, um, 
you know, if EPA is the outcome of interest, then yeah, BART might not be the best thing. Um, but again, this is sort of a modular framework and you could fit a different method in there. Well, yeah, I guess I'll just say also when I was, when I saw the question, I was just thinking about it. Um, like from the point of view of the work that we cost this, Sam and others at CMU on doing the full continuous time evaluation in football. I mean, like this model itself would be a piece in actually doing that. Uh, having the, as you said, Kathy, having the completion probability, uh, modeling, at, you know, what happens after the catch and everything. Uh, you, you would want to put those things together to have a continuous uh, version of where you think the play is going to end up to truly compute an expected points value. Um, I'm always a little leery about how it gets plugged in. Because, yeah, in the, in the end, like that is the optimal goal, this uh, – uh, point value, getting that, that dance phone, nice chart, the stock ticker chart. Um, but like in the end, like that's another model that then you put, you're plugging things in. Uh, so it's a very complicated function. So you actually do need to do the proper way of updating and doing a full integration. Like it's, it's not just, Hey, I have this quantity. Um, and I have the expected yards after catch. So for my expected yards after catch, I'll plug that value into whatever spits out the uh, expected points value for that. And that's my expected points for the situation. You can't so, do that because of the, how these expected points functions themselves are defined. Um, well, I think you're raising a couple of really useful points. Um, so the first one is like, if, if as Kathy suggested, this is a like one cog in a much larger machine, then one, one of the big takeaway messages from, from the paper is that like, well, you best account for uncertainty and propagate it through. And if you're uncertain about say, the probability that somebody catches the ball and you're gonna use that probability in some downstream calculation, well, that, that uncertainty is going to flow through. And, and so that I think is one reason practically why being the, the Bayesian approach is nice is because it's like really easy to do this by a simulation. Um, sample from a posterior catch probabilities that induces a posterior of, you know, whatever your downstream quantity is. As to whether BART would work, like if, if you just treat like, you know, if, if your model was, I'm gonna, my outcome is ex the change in expected, expected points. And I do like the simplest thing, which is, hey, this is continuous. Let me just fit a Gaussian error model. Like go right ahead. There's, there's sort of, no need to insist that your outcome is marginally like bell-shaped. I mean, we don't insist that for like linear regression. So there's, there's like no real reason that you would need to do it. You could try transforming it. You could try like a box Cox type of thing, but like, I don't know, try it. It, 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 it might work. It, it might not. Like, I, I, I don't know what to say. Um, like Bart can certainly handle that outcome, whether it's, it's useful, like maybe the model's just horribly misspecified and that's why it's failing. I wonder, I wonder if this question is coming from someone trying to use BART for some <laughs> instance and was observing very odd things that he's curious from an expert <laughs> to get insight publicly. I don't know, but. Well, I, 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 so I just wanna say like, I, I, I do think that this is an interesting question, but it, it really does come back to like, what's the question that you're trying to answer? Because even then, like we were focused on, this is a quarterback throwing to a receiver. Does the receiver make the catch? And 
once you start adding EPA, there's all this stuff that happens after the catch. And then you're, you're asking a bigger modeling question because you're then also asking like, okay, does the receiver have room to run? You know, how fast is he? All of these other things that like, even start, start getting into like how we model running backs and stuff like that. And so I, 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 I understand that like, it's interesting to ask a question of like, is BART the right tool for this question? But I would, I would really encourage people to make sure you're asking the right question first. Yeah, just to just to build on that, like Bart is a tool for like regression, and and so you have to ask yourself, is this is this regression like relating these x's to this y like a thing that I need to do, and then like how to do it? Well, then you can start riffing endlessly. Yeah, so um, moving on, I I went to um, that's a little bit on. I think, in my opinion, the most uh, interesting part of the paper, which is obviously the counterfactual and how uh, you kind of uh, estimate, um, uh, you know, the counterfactual, and given also your background and causal inference. One one thing I, I wanted to understand better on um, what exactly you did is uh, when you were sampling from the passes of or you that have observed, right? So you had uh, you know a set of uh, features that you could that you were observable either for the actual passes or the hypothetical passes. And then there was this uh, missing features that you had for the hypothetical passes. And you mentioned that you were doing some uh, sampling to um, you know, estimate these features. So my question is, did you, so what I, 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 it was not clear to me at least from the paper and I think it is interesting is, the sampling, was it based on all the data or did you do some sort of matching based on the observed uh, features. Yeah, um, I'm pretty sure what we did was we said, imagine that the pass was thrown in some time window, like say after a second and a half after the snap, then we just looked at all of the passes that were thrown within a small window around that time. And then maybe we filtered them again with some other criterion and then we just sampled from the observable. So we, we didn't sample from the entire universe of passes. We sampled from something that was like conditioned on a few of the observed axes. Okay. Um, we could, I mean, and I think this is one other sort of piece of this puzzle that you could improve on in a number of ways with say multiple imputation or a direct model of the missing outcomes given the, the observed outcomes. And I think that is a really rich direction that if somebody wants to go and, and do that, I'd love to hear about it. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I'll point out like we had a, it was a, a Twitter question slash comment from Tony Elheber, I'm probably pronouncing it wrong, but it talked about instead of randomly sampling from all of their passes, uh, passes be clustered, perhaps by routes, uh, samples only drawn from those same clusters or routes. Um, and yeah, I mean, like, that's, that would itself even be sort of like an obvious first step, right, if with that data provided. Um, and I guess this connects to the work of uh, like we're talking about the hypotheticals and um, like so what we just submitted for our, the big data bowl this year cost us myself of doing this ghosting approach like in a way it's trying to evaluate what's going on relative to where the where someone could have been right and in this case you're talking about evaluating the completion probability relative to okay if they would have actually been targeted for the people that they weren't, you know, the pass was not thrown to them, right? So then putting in all these potential uh, 
you know, you're putting in all these potential values for these features. So in a, in a way, right, what you're currently doing just, maybe I'm saying this incorrectly, but it feels like just kind of bootstrapping over uh, plays and then doing that averaging, right? The, um... You can't see us, but we're nodding. Yeah, yeah. listener here. We're yeah. It's it's so. This is another one of those things that like we whiteboarded for a little bit of like, okay, how are we going to like do these imputations? And again, there's sort of a time constraint, and it's like, okay, we're not going to do the most perfect thing, but we're also not just going to like take the average or something like that. Like, let's just sample and sample and sample and sample and sample. And so it's not just a question of like, where do we think the you know defender would have been had this other receiver been targeted at this other time it's what is the realm of places where he could have been um what does that space look like and so it's not just like a single ghost defender it's like you know however, however many samples we did it's like five thousand potential ghost defenders and five thousand potential receivers um and uh and then sort of looking at that whole distribution of potential passes. Yeah, no, I, that's what, that's the, that's the thing I really like about this. And it's just like, when I'm thinking about doing like this ghosting work is, you know, as of now it's like plugging in the expected defender location, it, it's plugging in a point estimate, right. For the hypothetical, but you know, there's uncertainty about that value itself. Right. So, you know, you're then accounting then for these two and you're ultimately in your result right you have two sources of variance you have the completion yeah, so probability you go ahead samir yeah so i i said and and i think in the paper this is really i think best summarized in equation two um where we're uncertain about the missing the missing covariance um so these are the the x miss or x sub miss in in, in equation two and we're also uncertain about, about the big function f, the, the thing that relates the covariates to the catch probability. And so the first step is, you know, we'll, we'll simulate a bunch of where is the defender on these hypothetical passes or how far away is, our, is he from the, the intended or the hypothetical receiver. And then we'll like simulate one of those missing variables and then we'll evaluate the probability. And then we'll do that again and again and again. And, and then we sort of average out the uncertainty over the missing covariates, and then we now are left only with the uncertainty about the the sort of function. So there's like a little bit of averaging going on in in this, uh, which is why that that is sort of the expected uh, part in the in the you know, name of the paper. So so following up a little bit on that, so one of the things that. Um, I had expected the results to be differently and uh, most probably I'm missing something here is you found that there is lower variance in the expected hypothetical completion probability, mm -hmm. but I would have expected to be larger, higher variance because you have now two sources of variance, right? You have the completion probability variance and where, what would have been the actual features. Yeah, so this is uh, basically a law of large numbers type thing, which is that the EHCP expected hypothetical completion probability uh, distribution is looking at a distribution of means, right? It's looking at the mean. So, so if you think about those two different graphs, I don't have the paper in front of me, but each of the figures, right? There's like the bigger one and the smaller one. And so if you just take the mean of each specific pass, we're looking at the distribution of those means. And so we would naturally expect it to have lower variance. So it's, it's essentially the distribution of the estimator. Yeah, yeah. Um, I, I do agree. It seems really counterintuitive. 
um, because we're adding a source of uncertainty, but we're also sort of like just averaging it out. Expected by this. Yeah, but we're averaging mm -hmm. it out. Right, we're, 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 we're integrating out the uncertainty and the unknown inputs. Mm -hmm. Do you, do you regret naming it EHCP? <laughs> I mean, yes. I mean, it, it gets to the point, but. Yes, but it also led to a lot of like really good comments at the Big Data Bowl when we were like in Indianapolis and some like good conversations about the like ridiculousness of the name. So, I mean, any press is good press. I, I only bring this up because it's like every time it's like fully said, what have you kind of like laughs at it in a way? It's, it's because I, don't, I like, I don't actually remember what like, like at, early on when we were doing this, we were calling these counterfactual passes. But, you know, one of the issues is that, like, there's this, it's not actually a counterfactual in the sense that you typically think about counterfactuals and causal inference. And, and there is like, I, and I think one really important thing that I, I think some big data bull submissions this year really thought about is, like, the pass went to a particular receiver. And, and by construct, that means it didn't go to any of the other eligible receivers. And is it even like, is there any positivity? Is there any sense of like, it actually could have gone to any of these other receivers? Um, I know on design plays, if a, if a quarterback has sort of a, a receiver in mind, he'll throw to them no matter what. So like that, that is something that's missing. So I think we, we laugh about the, the name, I think, because I never remember that H stands for hypothetical. And I always want to think about, oh, it means counterfactual pass. Well, what is, what is this name? So uh, yeah, it, it, it's cobbled yeah. together. It's clunky. It is definitely not the sexiest name in the world, yeah. but I, it's also I, highly accurate. I will say also that like, in addition to this idea that like, well, there's something to be said for the fact that this receiver was targeted. There's also something to be said for the fact that the quarterback threw the ball at all. Um, which is that, and I, I would say that this is like, I don't want to say it's a flaw in the paper, but it's something that like we don't really deal with, which is that the quarterback doesn't have to throw, right? Yeah. Like he could run, he could take a sack, um, he could fumble it. Uh, I mean, there, there is a fixed number of outcomes that could happen, but we are already conditioning on the world where he is going to throw the ball. Um, and that in and of itself is already creating like a strong set of assumptions. Yeah, and I, I guess like in the related sense of that full continuous time value um, of like modeling QB decision making, right? This is that this is a piece of that whole puzzle, right? Of um, and I think there there's work. Uh, there was a student that uh, Simon Fraser, Matthew Ryers, um, I might be saying his name wrong. Uh, he like implemented this and other pieces, I believe, to come up with like a full QB decision making uh, framework to put that together. The, um, so I guess, you know, something that's actually kind of interesting when I was just speaking of quarterbacks and like looking at your results, um, like in terms of like the player table, it's because it, it's kind of funny, right? Like this ranking of, I mean, we're only, the simulation, right, is we're only looking at the first six weeks of 2018. And so QBs that have the best and worst throwing uh, to most like most and least open receivers and you see like the best QBs according to this just this table of this sample are Javis Winston, Trevor Simeon, Jared Goff and at the bottom we have Russell Wilson, Derek Carr and Carson Wentz. Well, so I'm going to give you my interpretation. Was that as, as, a, as a committed Cowboys fan I think this makes a ton of sense. <laughs> okay. Well I'm going to give you my take on this of 
so ignoring just the fact that you just have the first six weeks, there's still also what I like what you do though, actually in the follow-up of like analyzing receivers, there's you're, you looked at the difference, right? Between that expected hypothetical and then the completion probability. So in this case, it's, and this, uh, you know, I give credit to like how some of the results are being presented for NFL next gen stats of like, does Russell Wilson, even if he's targeting uh, receivers that have such this lower expected hypothetical probability, the, um, but he, if he completes all of them, right, is that even an indication himself of being an accurate passer versus Jameis Winston, Trevor Simeon, and also, I mean, Jared Goff's not actually very good, I think, but I could be wrong. But, you know, those quarterbacks, maybe they were throwing to him. Blocks away from Cal. <laughs> sorry, I'm sorry, I'm sorry. I just, as a, as a Berkeley person, I got to stand for Goff. Okay. <laughs> well, I guess though, like, you know, they, they were throwing to Ovid receivers, but if we connect to the dots of Jameis Winston is literally attempting to throw to an open receiver, but then throwing in a pick six in the process. That's even more of a statement of how bad he is. Well, I think, and so I think, yes, there's the necessary caveat of like, this was not a lot of data. And, you know, that, that like has to be, has to be said. And, and we have to remember that at the same time, I think there is something to be said that like this expected completion probability and then our observed catch probability this is starting to allow us to disentangle like a, a, a QB threw the ball, a receiver either caught the ball or didn't catch the ball. Whose fault is it? Um, we see a completed pass. Is it a pass that is expected to be caught 80% of the time? But when we see that our catch probability model, like the core model that we started off with, if that seems like, you know, where the receiver was with respect to his defender, maybe that probability is super low. And so the ball was thrown in a way that like it, it under like on average would have been caught very likely, but something that the receiver was doing when he tried to catch the ball or maybe the defender was doing that brought the probability lower. So I think it's a very good narrative type of statistic to try to disentangle, you know, how should we credit a quarterback or a, or a receiver? Like, I think, I think that's really the utility in looking at that difference. Yeah. And I, and I guess going off of that, this is, the biggest problem i like well we have all this tracking data and people are doing a lot of very interesting modeling of different outcomes and but in the way the actual getting at the player contribution is still a really open question right of actually how do you attribute it's not just doing your basic plus minus uh you know on like play-by-play data um you know so i guess in this context something i wanted to like I, I just thought of this off the top of my head when I was reading through and thinking about the the BART approach for having this Bayesian variable selection of thinking about using BART with player indicator variables here uh, and seeing you know what is the resulting posterior probability of selection for you know whatever the receiver was on the complete on the pass or or the quarterback. Um, and have you thought about that approach of trying to maybe even get like the player's effect in this context? I mean, I forgot exactly how much data we had, but like if you're if you're adding a player indicator, like mechanistically, trees kind of scale. Like like there is no one of the nice things with BART is that the scaling per iteration is linear in the number of observations. 
So it's unlike, say, linear regression, which like is going to scale cubically with the number of, of, of predictors. So adding a very high dimensional input isn't going to totally screw things up. And actually, a big, a big reason for that Linero um, modification is to, 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 to allow for these sort of high dimensional uh, inputs that are caused because of like a, a categorical variable with lots of categories. So for me, like, is the method going to work? Like, there's nothing about the method that's so tied to dimension. I think empirically, like, look, you just don't have that much data for any individual receiver. So the extent to which a, an indicator for that receiver is, is predictive, like, probably not just because you don't have enough data. I mean, I, I look if you forward wanna... to us debating whether or not receivers matter. <laughs> We're not going well, to ask us. <laughs> I would go one step further. I would ask, do quarterbacks matter? Yeah, do know, quarterbacks right? matter? Do, do, does any player on the field matter? Have, you, think... have any of y'all watched the NFC East? I think nothing matters <laughs> anymore. It doesn't matter who your quarterback is. It doesn't matter who your running back is. It doesn't matter if you have an offensive line. You it's still just, got a shot it's just at the matters, It just matters what the incentives are for the team going into that night. That, that's yes. the only thing that matters, actually. <laughs> <laughs> Evaluating your young players. But it, to be serious, um, like I think there's a lot of room to do creative like feature engineering. Like instead of having an indicator for each each player, you could have something like a running stat or you know like how many catches has this like what what is this person's catch percentage like going into this game? What is like maybe player attribute? So it's a sort of a lower dimensional thing that still varies across players. So maybe like receiver height and mm -hmm. throw it into the mix and if Bart selects on it, fantastic. And if it doesn't, you can say the height doesn't matter. Drop the, it's like uh, Cole Beasley's music. <laughs> so very relevant to that actually. Um, so you said that with this type of models, obviously you can start thinking of, uh, you know, uh, crediting quarterback versus uh, the wide receiver and stuff like that. but. One of the uh, interesting things I saw in your evaluation was not only you evaluated, you know, whether it was the best route to target, uh, but also um, the timing. Uh, so you had some simulations for throwing the ball earlier and uh, stuff like that. So that, that, that to me is quite interesting because it has to do more with the quarterback's decision-making. So, uh, for example, Ron was mentioning about uh, Winston. Fine, he might not be able to throw the ball well, but he makes good decisions. So uh, at least he can uh, go through the reads, for example. Um, do you think here also, is there anything interesting to do with, with the um, reaction time of quarterbacks, right? Because maybe when they, they saw, so especially for those that are a little bit late uh, as uh, your analysis shows, it might have been that they saw them when they were the best uh, possible throw, but obviously there's some reaction time. So do you think, so this obviously goes very, 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 very detailed things of, uh, you know, how, how people think and react, but uh, do you think um, there could be a way to teach stuff like that out? I mean, I think this is probably getting towards that, but we're not there yet. Like, you can immediately start asking these like bigger questions where you're trying to like answer kind of a, 
you're answering a different question, right? And I think you can sort of take a lot of this like framework and try to fit it into something else. But, um, uh, you know, it, like when, when things start getting more and more complicated, it's hard to say that like, oh yeah, our, our like basic little framework can answer these like deeper questions. Yeah, I mean, trying to do a high resolution model of is the quarterback gonna throw in like the next like time window I mean, that sounds like a really awesome functional regression question. Um, I don't know if there's a PhD student who wants to do that, but like, I think there's a lot of room uh, to, to do that. And will, it, will that fit into the framework as it's presented in the paper? Like, I don't know, but probably like, because the idea in the paper is like somehow you fit these models and you want to use them but you don't know about all of the inputs. And so you simulate those inputs and then you propagate that uncertainty forward. So like that, that approach could be taken in any number of directions. So if you wanna get a really fine grained model of is the quarterback gonna throw the ball? And then you wanna say, well, what if you know, a lineman had a different position or used a different move against his blocker? Well, you can roll the same kind of EHCP like overall framework through that saying that I don't know where the lineman is, so maybe I should simulate the different lineman positions and output a probability of throwing and then average out that uncertainty over the lineman. So this is definitely extensible, like that part of the framework definitely can be used for other questions. Yeah, I guess I was just thinking in terms of, you know, anybody doing some sort of like ghosting work, right? Like in all those things are related to then doing this imputing process of modeling. I mean, it, it, in a way though, it's like, how much modeling do you want to get at for trying to arrive at this quantity? Because that, that's the big, in, to me, that's like the big downside of arriving at something that's sort of uh, the takeaways from working with the tracking data is in the end, it's gonna be a lot of these estimated quantities from a lot of different models. Like this ideal world of this full continuous time valuation, right? There's there's all those pieces that go into it, right? You have all of those models. So ideally you want all the, you know, we wanna propagate all of the uncertainty throughout that entire process. The, uh, so like the ideal world of doing this um, imputation is somehow doing the, a estimation of at this moment you know what is the new joint structure of all the positions of all the players updated right but that's a really complicated problem that you're not going to probably be able to do in a simple way or in a way that's uh that's going to give you any advantages over doing some sampling condition on the point of time or some distance of the past right uh, relative to what you're doing right I mean, and I apologize if this is overly philosophical, but like at some level, like there's going to be uncertainty in all of this. And if you look at your data and you find that like, you know, you try to account for all of this stuff and you propagate your uncertainty forward and then you look at your results and you're like, man, my predictive intervals are massive. Like in some sense, that's just a limitation of the data. You're not going to be able to do anything about it and like humble yourself. It's... It, the data just won't allow you to say much with certainty and 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 those are the breaks which is also i guess interesting to know from a like if i were a team i might 
want to invest a lot in this type of stuff. And if it turns out that like, hey, this just isn't predictable, mm-hmm. maybe don't keep trying or, I, well, no, I, I want to encourage people to keep trying fancy models and stay in statistics. So always try, try stuff, but you get, you get my point. Yeah, yeah. Uh, like related to this, so if you did this over a very prolonged period of time, what would have been the ideal thing you think in hindsight, if you, you know, if you didn't think about this at all anymore after what being the finalists, et cetera, moving on, you could, you could just say so, but like in hindsight, what do you think would have been the ideal, uh, if you had so much time to actually fully implement everything you wanted, what would have been the next thing you would have worked on for this? Um, I would have worked on a better imputation model, which is like, we talked about this, which is like, you know, if we know where the receiver was and we know where the defender was, we know their current speeds, right? Can you like do a better job of imputing out what they're, you know, the, the, the speed of the time of the throw? Can you actually do a better job of using that to impute the speed of the time of the of ball arrival? All of this other stuff where like, there's, there's a lot of information in there. And we were just doing like a random sample based off of some very simple filter. And I think it would have been, that, that would have been the next step to say like, okay, let's get a be- actual better idea of what this distribution of missing um, variables should look like. Uh, yeah, I mean, and we, like we talked about it and I think we even started coding some of it up and then it was like, oh, it's due in three days. So we're gonna not do that. Yeah, I, I think if, if I had, no other commitments and all the time in the world, I think I would be really interested in modeling the behavior of what happens between the time that the ball is thrown and the, by the time like a play is made on the ball. Um, because, you know, different defenders can close at different speeds. Um, some receivers are just really good at getting open post, post throw. And I think modeling that, I think would have added a, a certain element to this that, that's, that's missing. At, I mean, another thing that would have been fun to do is kind of account for what the game looked like from the standpoint of the the, the quarterback. I, I don't think we included like how close the like the lineman was. We might have talked about it and then we just didn't want to do it because it was a lot of coding and not a lot of time. Um, I think better accounting for the sort of pre-throw variables and and maybe thinking a little bit about, you know, you know, let's say that the throw hasn't been made after 0.5 seconds. Well, is it going to be thrown or has the quarterback made the decision not to throw the ball? Um, so somehow we didn't use any data from like plays with the quarterback scrambled. Yeah, I mean, and I mean, that's more things that would need to be imputed to, right? A thingy about, okay, so the quarterback started to, you know, he, he technically threw the ball on the run at this moment and then but if he waited a little longer right he would be more out in the pocket lineman near him Mm -hmm. would be shifted right um now that's yeah i mean from the decision from the idea of like how you evaluate a qb at the decision making point right that that is the point of decision when they're releasing the football and then everything else is afterwards i mean technically out of the qb's hands I mean, literally, you know, the ball's in the air. The so you know, people are reacting to what happened. So, yeah, I, I think a better model of that would would have been, at least in principle, it would have been for it, it would have made for a better result. But I mean, the nice thing is, like, 
I mean, you, you laid out the clear framework for doing it that we've now seen, I guess, several people actually start to do different things. Um, yeah, I was gonna say there's a lot of there's a lot of directions you can go with this. And I think we've seen people take it in many of those directions. I think we even talked about like, oh, you could use this to evaluate the defense. You know, go for it. The papers right now. Yeah. Yeah, and there's I, I, I of the notebooks I looked through in Kaggle, I think majority of them had this mentioned because <laughs> everybody doing the different like completion probability, target probability models. Dash Bond Evans is repeatedly mentioned throughout it. <laughs> well, I'm, I'm, I, I find that wild, but I'm, I'm yeah, glad really. people, I'm, I'm glad people found it useful or it got them thinking about stuff. Um, I would say one other thing that, you know, we, one, one of the weird things I think when I looked through the code was we kind of just use the information. Like, like we didn't take a functional data approach to this. And I think that, that that's really lacking and that, you know, what the, the sort of the time of arrival variables were, were recorded, I think at the, at the time snap or like the, the, the time point at which like something was recorded in the play-by-play, -play, like pass caught, pass broken up, interception, deflection, whatever, whatever it was. But we didn't use any information from like right before that. Um, I mean, this was just so that we didn't have to deal with like thousands and thousands and thousands of data points. Um, but yeah, I think I think a functional data perspective could have been cool. Yeah, no, I agree. I think that's actually something that's very under considered in the sports, the stats of sports realm is actual functional data analysis. Since especially tracking data, it is it is functional data. <laughs> yeah. The um, yeah, no, that's 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 an interesting point. Maybe at some point, I don't I don't know if anybody is taking uh, if there's a paper of actually. Um, I don't know if either of you know like a paper that's doing some real functional data analysis methods with sports data out there in JQAS. I I don't remember seeing one. Um, that could be something interesting to think about yeah, later I on. Yeah, let's maybe let's not reveal too much of that. <laughs> okay. <laughs> okay. Okay. The um, Costas, did you have any uh, any other questions on modeling you wanted to bring up at all, or? No, but I think uh, a relevant point to you know the functional data uh, part. Uh, well, it's tangentially related, but. Uh, for example, one uh, way to impute, as as you were talking uh, about that stuff, could be to use some sort of Kalman filter approach, right? Where basically you know, uh, you know, speed and uh, you know locations, and basically you know kind of the function you expect to, uh, the players to be. Oh, for sure. And, and I guess the nice thing is that like, what and this could be like. I think a really cool paper is just try a bunch of different imputation strategies and just roll it forward in, into this general framework. Some of them probably will work better than others. Some of them are sort of more, more model agnostic. A Kalman filter sounds like a really good idea, idea actually. I think better than say like mice or some other like big Gaussian model that you would have to assume. So off of that, how, how will you evaluate the hypothetical? Completion probability. 
that's a big question. <laughs> I just, it just came off the top of my head as soon as you said that. Thinking of how, what would be the way of doing the review paper on imputation approaches for this to actually think about evaluating the hypothetical. Well, I guess assuming the hypothetical that assuming that the actual passes were hypothetical. Yeah. Yeah. Or going back to the previous episode with uh, video games. That's true. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, yeah, you video games. There you go. I was like, go back in time. Um, you clone a bunch of quarterbacks. Well, this gets this gets into the positivity issue that like some of these hypothetical passes like may not ever have a chance of happening. Um, and so like we can't observe them, but I mean, one way, one thing we could do is look at the expected hypothetical catch probability for a pass that actually happened and then look at whether it was made. So you could check whether uh, conditioned on like actual passes, is this thing calibrated? Yeah. Yeah. I, I mean, that's the, that is the first pass type of thing. Um, oh, I, I'm going to hate myself for saying this, but like, does it pass the eye test? Um, it's, it's in, in terms the of- The go-to for all of us. <laughs> right, like- I, I mean, you could, you could end up doing something in a way that maybe even be like more meta in terms of, okay, this is the way of constructing this version um, is this the stable version of expected hypothetical, mm -hmm. right? Like mm -hmm. you do the meta framework approach, the, the Frank's born uh, at all yeah, paper, yeah. right? Like, uh, no, that, that's interesting. That, that's, a, that's an interesting idea because I mean, that this hypothetical component is not just related to completion probabilities we talked about, right? It, it actually is related to literally every step of the process of like modeling the football decision-making and, you know, all these pieces, you know, as soon as the, the receiver has the football, where they're starting to go and where defenders could have went or where the running back has, you know, where the line could have been for the running back, right. To assess, Hey, what if we change uh, the running backs team? How does it really affect their performance? Right. It's, it's all questions of hypotheticals. Yeah. And, 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 and the, the meta point is like simulate them and an average, like, average over the, the different states of the world that could have been. So before I guess we end, um, if Costas, do you have any other questions to go no, with? I, yeah. think, uh, I, I guess it was just to get your sense of, um, you know, your big data bull experience uh, for people that are wanting to go do it or whatever. Like, I guess it's virtual this year, um, but you know, what that experience was like for you uh, and advice you have for people even going forward, because I'm sure the big data bull is going to come back next year as well. Have fun. Yeah. Don't take it super seriously. I mean, I, to, be, to be fair, Samir and I went into this with like, we had no intention of like trying to get jobs in sports. Um, and we were just well, like, we know oh, that worked fun. out. <laughs> I know, but you know, but like, it was like, I was like, well, let's just have fun with this, you know, like, let's just have some good conversations and not take ourselves too seriously. And, um, and just like really enjoy it because your work sh should speak for itself and you might have to explain a couple of things but like don't get don't get stressed out about it like enjoy it yeah uh that that's a hard one to follow up on but uh yeah like it's 
I think focus really hard on the question you want to ask. And then I think starting from, from like, don't, don't try to do too many things at once. I think carving out, like this is a really rich data set and I think it can get really overwhelming. So if somebody's starting out like thinking about big data bowl and like, hey, I want to do it. I, I would say you absolutely should, but you're not going to solve football. Um, that, that's just not realistic. Uh, I think finding like even just like a small niche little thing and 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 just really having fun with it is is probably going to make for a more rewarding experience. I thought the actual going to the finals was super fun. Um, it was it was wild being at like the combine, I guess. Um, at least from my own personal fandom, it was incredibly wild. Like talking to my then head coach uh, in an elevator. Like that was fun. Wait, I just want to clarify something. You mean Jason Garrett was in? Yeah, yeah, we, we, short, we, we shared an elevator and, and Jerry's bus was parked outside of our hotel. So that was, that was fun. Um, <laughs> okay, that's pretty funny. <laughs> like standing in line, like checking into a hotel behind like a very famous GM and who, I may have said uncharitable things about on social media the week before, like that was wild. Uh, yeah, it's, it's, it was just a fun experience. Um, and all of the credit to, to Mike Lopez for, and, and, and the rest of his team, because like when we, when we talked there in the very first year, it was packed. I, I don't know if you remember Kathy, but like that room was full of people like, the NFL yeah, doesn't mess around with production value. <laughs> but yeah, like like I think I think it's it's to have fun, which is yeah. like it's, this sports analytics is fun above all, you know, like that's that's why I love my job. Like it's way more fun than anything I was doing previously. Um and I would also say that like if you're gonna work on a if you're gonna do a group project, if you're gonna do this, do it with somebody that like you get along with because you're gonna be talking and hanging out like a lot. And if you don't like the other person, it would be really bad. But Samir and I are pretty good friends. And so it made the whole experience again really fun and interesting. And you know, and then also be willing to compromise, which is that like I, like like I said, I don't I'm, I don't care about frequentist versus Bayesian, and so Samir wants to do Bayesian stuff. Great, awesome. I don't know that much about it. Great, here's my chance to learn, um, and that'll just make things a lot easier. Which is like, don't die on any hills for like your one little methodology. Yeah, I I, I agree. But if you're going to use Bart, like go for it. It's a good starting point. Yeah, no, and just going <laughs> off what you say, I think like these kind of opportunities with what they're doing are incredible learning opportunities right get your hands on this type of data uh it's still like I, I remember when two years ago when we our group at cmu and costas uh another pit student nick Renard, worked on this you know it was incredibly intimidating uh just getting the head around what the heck is tracking data uh and for us like it, it you know we did months-long discussions on like what you could do with this data and then uh you know turned out our own paper but like it, it for me it was something of you know this is a way to just like learn about something new in the process. Um, so, you know, and having fun with it as well. Uh, so I, I think both, you know, what you said, absolutely great advice and great pointers about this. Um, and again, you know, even if, even if Greg Matthews has the most listens on the podcast so far, Mike Lopez is, is number one for launching the big data bowl and all, and all this work that comes out of it. Um, 
it, it, for people that made it this far. Uh, I'm sure Mike does. He listens to every episode all the way through. I don't know if Greg does though. Um, but uh, so I guess uh, before we go, just uh, thank uh, Samir uh, and Kathy again. Um, and if you want, I mean, we could we could do a bit of a Star Wars thing at the end here. Uh, I'm ready. <laughs> I'm just getting warmed up. I guess we have to add this disclaimer that uh, Custis does not watch Star Wars, has never seen Star Wars. Yeah. Which I, I, Maybe I, I just found this out. Maybe I should put it on my Twitter bio. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I just found this out today. I, I have no idea what the how to respond to that, um, considering every 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 way I advertise this podcast has to do with Star Wars, Episode One, Episode Two, yeah, and then every GIF, you know. But let's not talk about that. I guess we should we, let's talk about Kathy's bio about being very upset of if the Rise of Skywalker. Is your favorite it's just, Star Wars it's just, movie? It's not just a bad Star Wars movie. It's a bad movie, period. And it totally it, it makes me so upset. I have I've only seen it once. I refuse to watch it again. It makes me really? mad because J.J. Abrams set up a bunch of really interesting stuff in Force Awakens. Like you could say J.J. was like trying to undo a bunch of stuff from the Last Jedi, and that's fine and that's fair. But he also undid a bunch of stuff that he already did in his first movie. It's just it's so bad. Also, Rogue One is boring. Those are my hot takes. <laughs> okay. Okay. So th- this this is this is my take. So remember that part about Kathy saying that like she and I were good friends. Like I'm gonna have to start reevaluating some 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 decisions right here. But uh... <laughs> so this is, this is my response: is I think all three of the of the sequel trilogy movies are very entertaining by themselves. Like if you just watch one, of, in my opinion, I can I have entertainment value from just sitting and watching each of them. Connected wise, in terms of like this overarching story, it doesn't make any sense, and it's that's that's the flaw. And so, I have when I saw episode nine theaters, I was overjoyed, and I was on the Star Wars high, and it was extremely positive for me, and I and I loved it at the moment. And then the more I think about it, and I've gone back, and the more I think about it, it, you know, the, the story's bad. All right, that, that, I, that's the bottom line. The story, the story is bad. And I it's completely so, disagree with you on Rogue One. Rogue One is so boring. Nothing happens in Rogue One. It's stupid. It's dumb. The characters have no growth. It is. It is like I'm, I will happily watch it instead of nothing. But I, it's such a boring movie. So is Solo. To be fair, um, I think Solo is less boring. I think Solo is like the the problem with the Han Solo movie is that it's about Han Solo. If it was just a random movie set in Star Wars, it'd yeah, be no, better. I, I agree with you that it shouldn't have been about Han Solo because. He, he just literally changed his name from Han Solo to like um, Jimmy Scrambles. Then it, that's a it's a great movie. <laughs> so, so basically, the bottom line here is that Ron, the way he evaluates movies, is on um, expected entertainment value above replacement. That's actually I think that's a I think that's a fair way to to rate a lot of movies, which is like what were your expectations versus how good or not good the movie was. And the problem with episode nine is that you expected it to be really good and then it was hot garbage. Yeah, to, well, to be fair, I went into episode nine with the okay, this is JJ Abrams. This is the guy that did Lost. This is the guy that has never successfully ended anything. Right? I mean, I and thought so, Lost was okay in the ending. Oh the, he, he <laughs> asks questions. He's very good at asking questions. And then he just asked more questions in episode nine. And then I feel like, yeah, you know. I think I think JJ Abrams should release a book that has the answers to all of the questions, but only the even numbered ones. <laughs> anyway, uh, like I love Star Wars. Honestly, like I just it's just Rise of Skywalker is just like 
Sorry, Honestly, keep your, say, say, your, say your piece. Oh, I, I mean, I, I, I found that movie entertaining until like the last act. And then I was like, what is this? And then I just kind of wanted to leave. And I think on the second time I watched it, I did end up leaving because I, like, I, I don't really care about who Ray was. Um, I thought she I, was a good character, except the whole Palpatine thing. Then, yeah, like, I, like it, so, it, did, it did nothing to me. Like did you, I, so did you like Last Jedi? Both I I loved the Last Jedi. Okay. I, I was I was riding hard for Broom Boy. <laughs> Broom Boy okay. is the MVP of so, that movie. So we all agree on that front. The Last Jedi is a great movie. I will it's not say in my the like, first... top three, but it's good. I mean, I, I'm just guessing Kathy's top three are uh, The Phantom Menace, uh, <laughs> Solo, and uh... Attack of the Clones. <laughs> um, well, first of all, Phantom Menace is like way worse than Attack of the Clones. I think anybody who doesn't no, like Attack of the Clones. I disagree. No. Okay, any... I disagree. Okay. Attack of the Clones is the worst movie. It's no. by far the worst. Oh my god. It's first of all, it's better than Rise of Skywalker. So no, it's not. you can't really so have, have you tried rewatching it? Yes, I have rewatched the prequels many times in my life. I have too, but the Attack of the Clones, like you got some of the lie. Yeah, it's, it's so one of one of one of the things that I, I think is underappreciated about Attack of the Clones is that when it came out, I was what, like around twelve in that like twelve, thirteen time frame. No, I might have been even younger. I was so, in high school, so. Yeah, I, then I would have been, yeah, or rather. And even there, I was like, man, this guy Anakin has no moves. And I I definitely did not even know what a move was when I was 12. Like so okay. I'm just saying a lot of that dialogue, when you've been in, like, if, I don't know, I've certainly been in some, like, really stupid relationships where I have said really similar stupid stuff. And I was like, oh, yeah, this is some very realistic the, dialogue. My problem with that movie is it's just boring. There's a lot oh, of. Oh, but you liked Rogue One. <laughs> Rogue One's good. Rogue One. Rogue One. Okay, oh, I will. I, this is what I will say. Okay, Rogue, okay, One. Rogue One has the single greatest scene in all why of Star Wars. Why is Darth Vader in that movie? I understand. I understand why Darth Vader is in that movie. Before. That's why he's. But, in the but it's not a movie about Darth Vader. It's Jin Erso's story. Why is Darth Vader suddenly show up at the end like some Confederate badass the, soldier it's the, it's destroying the beginning a bunch of, of New Hope? It's the connection. It's supposed it, to be it, a standalone movie. It's clearly but it, not. it's it's great. It made Vader what we always why, wanted. Why Vader why is the greatest moment in Star Wars uh, the bad guy mercilessly? slaughtering a bunch of people the because it sets Star Wars, because it sets up the end of uh, the mandalorian which is oh that, God, is, that was and that, and that is now the second best no, moment no. in star wars no the best moment in star wars is when finn goes back for ray and they hug because he didn't leave her behind like everybody else did see i i, I agree the force awakens is a great movie i love that movie and it set up so much so much great expectations and the last shit i thought was great and then and then JJ Abrams came back. Exactly. And that's why Rise of Skywalker is terrible. Yeah. The Mandalorian started off as just like cool. Oh, it's gonna be a bunch of like bounty hunting and like cowboys in space. Okay, and then so it turned into like, here's an opportunity to have a bunch of spin-offs. Hey, remember Boba Fett? Remember Bo Katan? Remember Ahsoka You want you want like NCIS Moss Eisley. Like you want um, the procedural Star uh, Star Wars. I, I want Law Order SVU yes. on like the bottom levels of Coruscant, and I would watch about fifteen thousand seasons of that. I want Parks and Rec Naboo. These that are the shows be, I want. That would be pretty. I don't want a Boba it, That would be pretty incredible. Okay. To be I fair, want... they they also are resurrecting one of my favorite TV shows, which is like I'm pretty sure Bad Batch is just going to be like Star Wars meets the A Team. It's fine. Like, I'm fine and, with that too. I hope and it's I'm fine. very okay with that. I'm very okay with that. 
I want Star Wars movies that don't have Jedi in them, or I want Star Wars stories that don't have lightsabers. That's what I want. I, I but I, I disagree. <laughs> I get you, know, you don't have to, but at the same point in time, you know. I you, mean, Kathy would probably watch like an office set on like the Death Star, just like mid-level like Death yes. Star management. I think like anybody would actually watch that though. I think it's, Custis it's would actually Matt watch that. It's the Radar Tech, but an actual show about Matt the Radar Tech. I think we would all watch it. Um, I mean, it's Star Wars. Like, I'm gonna watch it, and I'm probably gonna like it. Yeah, um, I will say though that my favorite thing that Disney has done is uh, Rise of the Resistance, which is the ride at Disney World and Disneyland, and it is like truly one of the best things I've ever been on. And it will make if you don't like the sequels, ride this ride. It will make you like them more. But I think they're gonna get they're gonna just wipe it out. Like, don't you know? Like, Baby Yoda is taking over. All yeah, of they're Star talking Wars. about they're changing. gonna eliminate everything. Ray doesn't can... exist, <laughs> Kylo Ren doesn't exist anymore. No, it's, okay, it's here's the thing. Okay, the point is so Galaxy's Edge technically takes place between episodes eight and episodes nine, but they're clearly gonna change that because it isn't resonating as much. And while they're trying to create these immersive things, a la the Wizarding World Perry, I am a huge theme park nerd, and uh, Kostas is dropping off, so bye. <laughs> um, Look, I'm just gonna say, Rise of the Resistance is great. They're not gonna, they're not gonna scrap it. They're not gonna change it. It is, it is the best theme park ride in the world. Um, and if you have an opportunity to go when it is safe to go to a theme park, I highly recommend everybody do it, even if you are not that excited about Star Wars. And then, honestly, if you're listening to this, still, you're excited about Star Wars. So. <laughs> I, I I have no idea how many people will actually make it. To oh, there's the, there's going to be because there's a chart always of like the like percentage of make it to a certain point. There's going to be this massive drop, and then there's going to oh, be this my. nice small subset of these people that are like, yes, I want to hear this discussion, and I have so much more to say than either of these people. You know, <laughs> opinion of star, what the, the current. I hear Kathy's opinions Wars. on Scott Trowbridge and the retirement of Joe Rody and whether that's going to change how Disney handles immersive things in their theme parks, and whether or not Star you know okay and the, the scrap oh third Lord. ride that was going to be about riding banthas they had a ride about riding banthas yeah and then they scrapped it wow yeah um anyway yeah. <laughs> one is boring uh yeah, that, that's that's my that's, that's my hottest take. I think a lot of people don't like Rise of Skywalker, so my Rogue One. Yeah, is no, I think I, I think everybody like name five characters in Rogue One. Jyn Erso, Darth Vader, Princess Leia, Grim Moff Tarkin. Name and, five uh, characters Galen, in in, uh... Ro in Rogue One who aren't <laughs> in any other Star Wars movie. Sagarera. Cassian Andor. Uh, unclear because he's getting a spinoff, right? But yeah, I'm fine. excited about that. Okay, I'll give you yeah. Jenner. So name two more. Uh, Donnie, Donnie Yen. Uh, what was what was his Orson character? Orson Krennic. Okay, there you go. So, so, yeah. so there. Yeah, there we are. Uh, no, no love for Baz Malbus. <laughs> Galen Urso. Uh, yeah, I, I mean, I went with Matt Nicholson's character. <laughs> yeah, I mean, again, I I am thoroughly entertained. And and for the record, like I just finished watching Clone Wars. I just watched the finale again today. So I have thoughts, but that's that's another time. Yeah, I think we've gone on for long enough. <laughs> I, I I think I think we could end it here on the on the Star Wars discussion. I think this is just indicative of the fact that we haven't seen each other in person in like a year. And yeah. I, I miss you guys. The um
That's all. Yeah, I, that's, I have uh, no idea how, how many people will make it to this ending. <laughs> the, uh, so I, I probably should stop the recording now, officially. The, uh, it so. was great. Thank you for having us on to talk about Yeah, this was great. Thank you. Yeah, no, and, and uh, thank you both for also joining. Um, and it's great to review the paper uh, since everybody's kind of using it for the big data bowl and also just get more insight directly from you uh, through the podcast. So thanks again and uh, stay tuned for info on the next episode. Thanks for listening to another episode of the Open Source Sports Podcast. You can follow us on Twitter at OpenSRCSports. You can follow myself, Ron Yurko, at stat underscore Ron and Costas Pelicrinus at K Pelicrinus. We'd appreciate it if you could take a moment to subscribe and rate the show on Apple Podcasts. And you can find our podcast on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Podcasts, and many more. Thanks for listening.